You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Above reproach. And then we have specific qualifications under the umbrella. We spent some time on one woman man or husband or one husband or one woman, one wife husband. And, and there's there's some disagreement of exactly what that means and how far you want to take that in specific areas. And so we talked about that and one thing we know that it means for sure is that a man, an elder must be above reproach in his marital and sexual life. We talked about fairness in qualifications. Um, God is always fair. So if, the, if your understanding of the qualifications for eldership seems unfair to you, you either have a misunderstanding of the qualifications for eldership or you have a misunderstanding of what fairness is. Um, last part was the whole idea of qualification, unqualification, non-qualification. It has no bearing on a person's value. It's just a role. So we're going to move on today. 1 Timothy 3, continue on in verse 2. We got as far as husband of one wife last time. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So the second or third or however you're counting your qualifications word there, qualification is temperate in my Bible. Um, You may have something a little bit different. Vigilant. Maybe both translate the same word. It's an interesting word. I want to bring this out a little bit because it really is interesting. It might be there's ways that you can really, I think, misunderstand this. Have you ever heard of the temperance movement? Remember the temperance movement? You know what that's about? Yeah, it's about not drinking alcohol. Temperance. There's actually still around today the woman women's Christian temperance union. That's still around today. They even have a website. This group started in, I think, the 1800s. They were uh, actively involved in prohibition and those things. And they still exist now. And their statement is, they choose, they choose total abstinence from all alcohol as their lifestyle, protection of the home as their watchword. All right, so it's about abstinence, complete total abstinence from alcohol. So that's one meaning of the word temperate or temperance, but it's translated vigilant in the King James. So what's going on here? Let me tell you what the word literally means. It's really an interesting word. It literally means wineless. That's what the word means, wineless. The, the man must be wineless. Right? Huh? Yeah, they only drink whiskey and they're... No. It... it Literally means wineless, but it's clearly being used in a more figurative way here. How do I know that for sure? How do I know that an elder doesn't have to be a total abstainer from alcohol? No? Yeah, later on in this very book, First Timothy five twenty-three. <clears throat> Paul tells Timothy, no longer drink any water, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. 
So it was okay to, to use some wine in moderation there. And there's another reason why I know he didn't, he didn't mean total abstention from alcohol, total abstinence from alcohol. How do I know that? Well, that's true, but here in this very passage, I have something else. He said, Jesus made water into wine, which is true. Can look a little further into, let's see, verse 3. The first qualification in verse 3, 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, not addicted to wine. So, he wouldn't say wineless and not addicted to wine, right? That doesn't make sense. You don't have to say that twice, wineless. If you literally mean wineless, would take care of not addicted to much wine, and you wouldn't tell Timothy to use a little wine. Okay? So we know that it doesn't mean total abstinence. So what does it mean, wineless? It's a word that was used to figuratively mean clear-headed, alert, the opposite of what someone gets when they've had some wine and they're addled a little bit from the wine. Okay? So an elder has to be that. He has to be clear-headed. He can't be inattentive or muddled, addled, unaware of what's going on. Right? He's got to be alert, vigilant. Right? I think that's a kind of a cool word. Next one is prudent. Um, self-controlled, maybe in your Bible. Sober, maybe in your Bible. Uh, all good words, and that's just what it means. Emphasizing solid, even, somebody who's calm, um, you know, not emotional, subject to wild Swings of despair and fear and anger and all of that. Someone who's self-controlled, even-keeled. This next one's interesting to me. The word in my Bible is translated respectable. King James says of good behavior. It, it's a really, it's only, this word is only used a couple times in your entire Bible. I want to show you where else it's used here. First Timothy 2 9. Back up of, of just a few verses. First Timothy 2 9. <clears throat> it seems completely unrelated. First Timothy 2 9 says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. There's a word there that is the same adjective that is translated respectable or good behavior in First uh, Timothy three two. You guess what that is? Which which adjective in First Timothy two nine is the same? Same word? What? Uh, the the modest part of it. That would be my guess too. Because that sounds like, right? But it wasn't it. Propriety. Yeah. Proper. Right? You know, propriety. That's the word. Which is kind of interesting. Here's why it's got, I think it's kind of interesting. Only use twice, that word. Right? There's a word that's used many, 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 many times. In your Bible, it's the Greek word cosmos, and it's translated almost always as world in your Bible. But it doesn't really mean world like the earth. It means the, the system, the, the order of things. The whole universe might be a way to translate it. But emphasizing the order that is seen in the universe. So this is really a sense of something that is ordered. It is an orderly life that we're looking for. First Timothy 2.9 uses a similar word 
in uh, for the word adorn. Kind of interesting. You could almost translate this First Timothy two nine as likewise I want women to order themselves or arrange themselves with orderly clothing. The sense of order, decorum, propriety. And that's the way an elder their life has to be. It can't be chaotic. Okay? If you've got somebody that's, you know, constantly having issues and it's chaos in their home and things are going wrong and some days things are going right, it's not, you know, that's that's not the character of an elder. Does that make sense? Okay. I like that word. Next one, hospitable. Another interesting word. The word is philoxenos or something like that. You know what philo means? Philadelphia. You heard Philadelphia? What is Philadelphia? The city of brotherly love. So... Phila, brotherly love, or love, Delphia, city. So, Phila means love. Xenos, X-E-N-O-S. You heard the word xenophobe or xenophobia? So, if someone says you're a xenophobe, what does that mean? Yeah, you are afraid of strangers, or you hate, they put phobia on. But you're afraid of strangers. Xenos means strangers. So, how do you put this together? A love of strangers. That's what it means. A love of guests or love of strangers. When we think of the term hospitable, what do we think of? Having people in your home, right? And that is a type of hospitality. But there's other ways to love strangers, right? And I love people in the church because I am, I'll confess to you, I'm terrible at this. I'm painfully shy. You may not know this, but it's true. I'm painfully shy. And when there's new people, my wife is not painfully shy. She has a love of strangers, and she goes, hey, how are you? And she comes and tells me their entire story, you know. When they were born, how they met, where they came from, what color the carpet is. Blah, blah. She knows all of that. So, so it's, that's great. We need people who have that, right? <laughs> Women tend to be better at that than men. I, not always, but there's some. Thomas is very good at this, if I can not embarrass Thomas, but. You know, he's very good with new people. Um, so it's good to have those kinds of people. But that's really what it means, love of strangers. It's when you see somebody you haven't met before, you want to go talk to them. You want to get to know them. You want to show love to them. That's what it means. Now, we take it to mean bringing people into our homes, and that's true. But if I bring my friends into my home, that's not really hospitality in a sense. It's, it's strangers, not just you know, friends and family. Right? So that's what it's talking about. Now, historically, hospitality was really super important. This idea of actually bringing strangers into your home, super important. Why was that? At the Bible times, why was hospitality so important? Yeah, where were they going to go? There, were, there weren't a list of open hotels that were affordable that you could go to and that were safe and decent. Any hotel type of place was more likely a den of iniquity and, and a, you know, infested with whatever infestation they would have had. Alright, so it was really important when someone came that you invited them into your home so they had a safe place to be. Okay. Um, I want to read you just one. This is a quote from uh, Strzok. Remember I showed you that book when I started? Remember that? This is a quote from him. He says, In his mysterious ways, God works through the guest-host relationship to encourage and instruct his people. 
So we must never underestimate the power of hospitality in ministering to people's needs. Those who love hospitality love people and are concerned about them. If the local church's elders are inhospitable, the local church will also be inhospitable and indifferent toward the needs of others. So, it's again an example. Okay, next is the one Dorothy asked about and I wanted to spend a fair amount of time on. 1 Timothy 3.2 Overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach in my Bible, in your King James Bible, apt to teach. <laughs> so Dorothy's question was which one of those, basically which one of those is more correct? Is that, get at your question? idea. And there's lots of ways to answer it. Um, first of all, the word apt in the King James, during the time when King James English was actually spoken, that's just meant able. So really, there's no contradiction there. But when we say apt to teach, we mean something different, right? We say he's apt to do this or that, we mean he's likely to do that, right? So, it's, the question is still, is it just somebody who's able to teach or is it somebody who's likely to teach, who, who has a desire to teach, who has to teach? And I think there's a really clear answer to that. I won't turn you to all of these scriptures. Um, first of all, the word is didacticos here. And it, that doesn't give you much help because it means teachish, teachy, teach something. It's a, there's no, it just means teachish. It's just an adjective use of this. So it's not, it doesn't give you much. It's only used twice. You'll find this is true. A lot of the, when I keep saying this is only used twice, and the second reference will be in 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy or Titus, there's a lot of words in these books that are not used anywhere else in Scripture. And that has led some people, that's, you know, the whole argument we started with that maybe these books were not biblical because of the absence of discussions of elders in the church epistles. This also adds to that argument. Well, Paul uses a lot of different words here that he doesn't use anywhere else. So they're probably not Paul's, Paul's letters. Um, that's nonsense. Paul's writing about different things here. What uh, does the word have mean in the dictionary? I don't think so. Um, yeah, I, I I think that this was a King James translation of that word didacticos, and they said they meant they would have said someone who has the aptitude for teaching or ability. I think those are pretty close to the same. But when we say aptitude, or well, we say aptitude, that's what we mean is ability. But when we say apt, we mean likelihood. Right. See, that's how you reconcile this, right? We talked a lot about the man has to have or would have the desire to be an overseer. And part of the actually desires the work of an overseer. And the work of an overseer centrally is teaching. So it's someone who does, in fact, have the desire to teach. And I would even go a little bit stronger than that. First um, Corinthians 12, Romans 12, they list spiritual gifts. One of them is teaching. There clearly is a spiritual gift of teaching. Uh, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4 allude to the gift of teaching. They don't necessarily list it there, but they talk about pastors, teachers, like that. 
I think you could stay with some confidence, and we'll look at a passage here, another passage here in a second supports this a little bit. An elder must have that gift of teaching. And if you have a spiritual gift, you are constrained to use it. Not only because you have it and you have to use your talents for the glory of God, but because that's what you do. Right? Having that gift, I want to use it. I have to use it. I'm constrained to use it. If I don't, if, I, if you have a, a gift, even a, I would even say a, uh, if you have a real powerful talent and you don't use that, it's like skipping a meal, isn't it? You've you got to do it. And I think that's what's going on here. Elders should be gifted teachers. It not, not, doesn't mean that they're great teachers necessarily, but they should have a spiritual gift of teaching. And if you listen carefully to them, you should be edified by what they're saying from the Word. Because they have the gift of teaching. Right? Um, yeah. I Just a side note on it. He says, isn't it sad what's out there? When I went to Klamath Falls, you know, for that, I went to so many churches, you would not, I mean, just trying to find one where someone taught from the Word, and I finally found one. I don't know, I might have told some of you this story. He, did, he wasn't a great teacher. If you used to sit there and, and look, you know, he, there's nothing exciting or dynamic. Or, but man, if you listen to what he says and you go back and listen to it again, he is digging out stuff from the Word. It's amazing. That's what I mean by the gift of teaching. He's able to do that, even if he's not dynamic. There's some really dynamic guys. They're on TV and they have humongous churches, usually in Texas. I don't know why. <laughs> Not naming any names, but huge. And, you know, they, the camera... Sorry about that, chat. I didn't say Florida. The camera pans out and these guy's in a stadium. Nobody can even see him except he happens to be on the, you know, multiple big boards up there. And you listen to him, Christian. You listen to him. There's nothing there. They, what was that all about? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, and I've seen better motivational speakers, you know. Um, okay, let me let me read you uh, one little passage again from First Timothy. This is First Timothy four thirteen through sixteen, and this is uh, kind of personal to Timothy, but it it kind of supports this idea of such men having a teaching gift. First Timothy four verses thirteen through sixteen. Paul says, "Until I come." Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Timothy wasn't supposed to just prepare... He wasn't supposed to just teach. He was supposed to be taking pains with these things. Right? Working hard. Be absorbed in them, my Bible says, but the word absorbed isn't really there because it's in italics. Be in them. Be in these things. Right? Have yourself in your teaching. And that's clearly what Timothy did. So I think when it comes to the idea of able to teach, it actually refers to a gifted teacher who is constrained to teach, who has to teach. That is who he is. And if he doesn't teach for a period of time, he's like starved, frustrated. 
right? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The gift of teaching is not limited to elders, and the Bible doesn't teach that. But I think the the converse is true. Elders do have to have the gift of teaching. Right? In fact, there's people in here who have a gift of teaching, some of whom are women, for instance, not called to eldership, but still must use that gift and are constrained to teach. Right? So how does that work out? Remember, it's the Holy Spirit that calls elders. The Holy Spirit that makes overseers. Hey, the cooler shut down. No, the Kleinsters can actually hear the lesson. <laughs> that would be great. Uh, the first part was way better than this, the rest of this to come. Right, so when the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit calls those who the Holy Spirit also equips, right, and equips with that gift of teaching. So does that answer that? Yeah. Compelled, constrained. Okay. I can tell you, you know, I don't usually teach this class, but I have to teach something. I love teaching the teenagers because they're just so amazing. And they get it. And they ask questions that are just amazing. And and they change because of it. So I love to teach them. And if I don't, like, sometimes we we do youth group uh, the second and fourth Wednesday of every month. Sometimes there's a gap between the fourth and the second. So there's not just one week, there's two weeks sometimes, it's five week months. And I'm out of rhythm. And I'm like, this something's wrong, right? And then you figure out what it is. Ah, I need to be doing that. So our family devotion time gets really long and I have notes. <laughs> but the girls are very patient. Uh, so, look, what does this really mean? Does that mean that that somebody who has, let's just say, somebody has a gift of teaching, not just necessarily an elder, but somebody has a gift of teaching, does that mean they can just stand up, randomly open their Bible, and preach like Spurgeon for 35 minutes, precisely 35 minutes, and then sit down? Spurgeon could do that, but he's unique in all of human history in many ways. That that guy, but. The point is, can they, is it just easy? No, it doesn't mean that. That's not what that gift means, right? It means it's effective and it's pleasurable, but not necessarily easy. It can be very difficult. Right, for sure. What do you think you have specifically? Well, for teachers, you also need to want to be able to research and yeah. study. Right. It's a love for that. It's an enjoyment in doing that. Opening up, you know, a few different commentaries and looking at things. If you actually enjoy that, and that's, I think that is a, that is a gift. It's not maybe listed as a spiritual gift, but it's a it's something that God gives you. Just like everything.
Ephesians 4.11. We've been here before, but I'm just going to sneak back over there for a second. Just to remind you of this passage. And this will, I think, kind of wrap up the section about uh, able to teach, I hope. Ephesians 4.11-14. through 14. Ephesians 4.11-14. It says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. It goes on. So why are these especially gifted people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers included, why are they given? That's what it says, right? Building up of the body. Equipping of the saints for the glory of God. And how does that happen? What is the primary responsibility of the overseer? We're looking at Acts 20. What did Paul tell the elders to do? Shepherd the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Shepherd that flock. Primary role of the shepherd is feeding. That's why elders exist, is to teach the flock. Also to protect the flock from false teaching, but that's teaching, isn't it? That's why elders exist. It's the primary role. What's interesting here is all the qualifications we'll go through apply to all of us except for this one. We don't all have to be able to teach. Nowhere in in Scripture are we all required to be able to teach. Now, we we have to be able to understand and defend the gospel and, and, and that, but we don't all have to be able to teach other Christians. Put it that way. Elders are specifically given for that purpose. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with that. I think a, a pastor elder has to be gifted as a teacher. Again, not they don't have to be Spurgeon because that would be, you know, pretty rough. They don't have to be Jim, fortunately. Uh, but they have to just faithfully be dividing the word, even when sometimes, like last week, it's controversial. They have to they have to be willing and able to do that. More than willing and able, they have to love to do that and be constrained to do that. Yeah. You mean as like as teenagers? I would think you pursue it. Now, how exactly do you do that? You know, sometimes it's difficult. Like with teenagers, we have LITs, 
And part of the job of every LIT is to be available to teach Scripture to kids. We, we say that they're hearing the verses, but if all we're doing is hearing the verses, we'll cancel Awana next week. If all we're doing is hearing verses. We have to make sure that we're teaching the Word, that we're making sure kids understand the Word. And sometimes over there, you know, that's a whole other thing. You know this. It's so so busy sometimes that you feel like all you did was hear some verses. But the idea is that they actually teach that. So the kid says, you know, for God so loved the world. Ray, that is like the fifth time. <laughs> I don't think he knows how to turn it off. But... <laughs> And I'm, I don't want to speak for Jess, but for me, this is, I, you know, I like this. But what I really like is preparing this. That's, that's the cool part. I'm, I can't believe that. Oh, I gotta, I gotta make sure I say that. And then, oh, that's great, but I only have, I only have about 35, 40 minutes, whatever it is that I have, and so I gotta cut that out. That's the really the amazing and fun part. And I heard MacArthur teach on that one time. He said the same thing. For him, he would rather not even have to get up and do that. That's not his thing. But the preparation is what's fun. Okay, uh, if that makes sense. And you guys are sitting in the wrong spot, so that's kind of bothering me a little bit. <laughs> so if, if you have a question, I may not see it. Yeah, no, it's not that. It's just like my eyes are not trained to. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> no, don't be quiet. Um, where was I? First Timothy 3. Go on to uh, 3 3, another list, continuing list. Uh, the first one is not addicted to wine in the New American Standard, not given to wine in King James, not given to much wine in the NIV. What do you think that means? Did he figure out how to turn off your phone? Right? <laughs> what, under control? Right? In their consumption of alcohol, under control? That would be a good way to put it. Moderation. Good question. In this case, who would decide that an elder is qualified is the other elders of the church. And then that would be kind of confirmed by the, by the church if there's anything that they had, someone had a reproach against them. And if somebody thought excessive alcohol use was, had risen to the level of reproach for this person of disqualification, they would have to let the elders know. So ultimately it would be the elders. <laughs> and 
and that's the, the idea about the, the ancient wine being more grape juice, less alcohol. The truth is it had alcohol in it. I mean, we, we do try, we try to do that because, I just, I'm gonna say this not because of any, you know, just so you're clear about me, I don't drink alcohol at all. So, I'm really comfortable with that argument. <laughs> but, biblically, I can't say that that's, that, that really it means don't ever drink anything that has alcohol in it. Don't get drunk. Get, get, getting drunk is a sin. That's clear. So. Then it said it was a way to purify why the alcohol actually didn't make it healthier, and that's part of why Timothy was encouraged to drink. So. And thank you for bringing this up because I was going to ask a question too. Uh, yeah, some of these cakes were bought, and, and it wasn't alcohol, it was just grape juice. And I think from what Scripture says, it was you know, yeah. get drunk on it. Like <laughs> yeah. You know, I would say that that would, would have been alcohol. I've gotten sick on grape juice before, but I've never been inebriated on it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there, there's, there was alcohol in it. So, we're, so what does this mean exactly? Somebody said moderation. Remember the standard. This is a good chance for us to go back and remember the standard. Above reproach. So is the man above reproach in his use of alcohol? Alcohol is not, you know, there's not, there's no requirement that we completely abstain from alcohol. An elder has to be above reproach in it. And really, all of us should be above reproach in our use of alcohol. There must have been a lot of alcohol in it. We know a lot of people Yeah, there was some in there anyway. <laughs> I don't know, they could have drank a barrel of it, I guess. How do we know that it's not total abstinence again? Well, we just saw that in, in 1 Timothy 5 where Paul tells him, tells him to take a little wine. And if it was, in fact, the alcohol made it, a safer, healthier thing for him when he was having stomach problems. Uh, he was being asked to take a little wine that actually had alcohol in it. Okay? Think about this for a second, and you have to use sanctified imagination here for a second because Scripture doesn't tell us this. Why did Paul have to tell Timothy that? Do you think Timothy knew that? Wouldn't everybody have known that? Why, why would Paul have to tell Timothy that? Take a little alcohol. Take a little wine. You think maybe Timothy had never had any alcohol? What are you trying to say here? <laughs> Yeah, they may have avoided it as a... Yeah, it's, it's possible. Right. Remember what Timothy's doing here? Okay. He's going into a church, acting as a leader, a, a, a delegate of Paul, right? He may have thought, look, this thing, alcohol, is controversial even in these times. I'm just going to avoid it. I don't know that. I'm just... 
This is, again, imagination. But it makes sense to me in that he would have said, Look, I understand that you know, some people are offended by wine and it, it can cause problems, and so I'm just going to avoid it altogether. And Paul may have said, look, you need to use a little bit of it. Yeah. So compassion for his, his weaker brother. Now think about that motivation for a second. So I think that's, that's a good one. If, if, uh, someone came to you and said, hey, you know, we, we, we think you're acting as a deacon. You seem to be acting as a deacon. Would you be willing, or an elder, would you be willing to serve in that function, be recognized in that way? And they said, and we understand this to mean that you shouldn't drink any alcohol. If a man is unwilling, if, a, if a, I think, if a man were to say, no, you know, I don't want to give up my alcohol, my occasional glass of wine for that. Uh, well, okay, but you, we, we might offend some people in the church if they found out about it, so we just ask you to, you know, if you just abstain from that. How does that work? Confusion of your priorities. I'll give you an example. Okay, this is a more extreme example. I came from a regular Baptist church. Anybody know regular Baptists? Ever been a regular Baptist church? They're very conservative. Uh, in not, they're theologically conservative, which I appreciate, and they're also theolo- are conservative in every other <laughs> imaginable way. Uh, very serious about the doctrine of separation. So one thing that some of the folks in the church didn't like was men with beards. I mentioned that before. The associate pastor had a beard. He was, uh, some men do this, if they're balding and they, they grow the big beard. <laughs> he, that's what he was doing. And he made fun of it. He's a great, uh, very nice man. Good man. The, one of the men came to him and said, you know, you, I appreciate everything you do. I love you and your family, but that beard is driving me crazy. It offends me. And so, this, uh, Pastor Craig, he says, well, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that says you shouldn't have a beard or in that kind of talk. He says, I know, I know, I understand all that, but it, it's just the way I was brought up, and it just offends me. And so he said, okay, well, you know, we'll see what, see what happens. And he went home, and he shaved off his beard. That is taking that idea of not offending your weaker brother very seriously, isn't it? Now, he did the teaching that he should have also done, but in the end, he tried not to offend his brother. So I think it's the same here. And I'm, you know, that's just, if, isn't it a servant attitude, a humble attitude that is willing to forgo something that is a, it is a perfectly lawful pleasure for you to, to have, um, but you're willing to forgo it for the sake of your brother. No, you need to talk, you need to teach him too. But if there's, you know, some people were raised, for instance, by alcoholic parents. So they go to an elder's house and there's a bottle of wine in the fridge. That's going to offend them in an emotional way. And, you know, they can't necessarily reason through it. So I'm just, just because alcohol is offensive to some people, I think we need to be sensitive about it. That's all I'm saying. 
thing. Well, you do need to teach them because it isn't, it isn't uh, prohibited. Dorothy? Has to be teaching towards them. Yeah. Well, I I think we're probably doing them some good. I mean, but yes, you want to teach them, help them to grow out of it. But but I don't want to say, hey, you're a you're a babe. I'm going to keep doing this until you figure out that what I'm doing is okay. That's not that's not where I'd want to go. That's right. Your conscience may be completely clear. There needs to be teaching there about Christian liberty. Right? I think the principle of not offending your brother is a biblical principle. It, I mean, it is. So that is something we're constrained to follow, no matter the cost of that. At the same time, you know, trying to talk to people about it, you know, you seem to be offended by my shirt. It's green. It's perfectly fine. There's nothing in the Bible about not wearing a green shirt, you know. You need to, can we look through the scripture where it says I have to wear a necktie? You know, and yeah, that's fine, so long as it's done in a loving, loving attitude. You have that responsibility, yeah. Yes? Can lead to reproach again. Right? So again, we always we keep coming back to that. You've got to be above reproach in all these different areas. These are just specific areas under that umbrella of, of above reproach. Okay. Thomas. Oh, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know. I doubt it. 
but I don't know that. Because, you know, without refrigeration, grape juice very quickly turns into wine. So, yeah, sour grapes. So I, I don't know. And, you know, I don't want to make this, a le- again, a lesson on alcohol because I think the Scripture is fairly clear on that. Alcohol is a Christian liberty. It's got to be used carefully in moderation, and we don't want to offend people in our use of anything, whatever it is. Right? So that's fairly clear. For elders, that's more or less exactly what this means. Uh, there's a good old word, toper. Remember the word toper? Tippler is another one. That's a, you can't be those things. You can't be somebody who frequents bars, who is kind of close to alcohol. That's, that's really what it means. It's kind of close to it. Um, addicted isn't really in there. That's kind of added in modern English, but it means not close to it. You're not close to alcohol. You know, it's like anything else for you. It's something you can you can use in moderation. You're not married to the idea of having to have alcohol. Okay. All right. Well, okay. Well, I'm, let's just finish this up. You guys know I work with teenagers. How do you think I teach teenagers about alcohol? Teenagers need to be completely and totally abstinent. They cannot use alcohol whatsoever. It's not for them. It's like marriage. There are things that are great in marriage, not great for teenagers. The same idea. It's not for them. One thing it's illegal, for another your parents don't want you to do it. Both of those things are enough to completely prohibit it. You cannot use alcohol. Okay? We're talking about adults. And I should also say that I do, when I have a cold, use nitrile. I know it. I do too. Right? <laughs> Carol does too. But I don't drink wine. <laughs> yeah, but when you think about it, you know, we don't want to be, we, we never want to get on a high horse of, you know, well, I'm this or that, because you're not any of that stuff that you say you are. You know, we're all just in this together. Or all stayed by grace. Right? And NyQuil works for me. I, it take, I take a little NyQuil for my cold. It works. Yeah, you see what I mean. Right, the next one is, uh, we, we're not going to have time for it, but we'll, we'll go on to uh, finish up the qualifications. We should be able to do that next time. And then what I think I'm going to do, if this works for you guys, or works for almost all you guys, uh, is just go on to Titus and look at the qualifications there because there's some different emphasis there. And then come back to 1 Timothy and look at some other issues of, uh, besides qualification of recognition and support and all those other issues that are mentioned in reference to elders in 1 Timothy. Okay. And we'll do that. And then probably 1 Peter. And then I will go teach uh, something to junior high kids. Okay. Does that work? All right. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful again for your word. There, there's such depth in it. That we I just often feel like we skim over the top of it. And um, the great thing is we have an eternity to come back to it and really understand what you really want us to learn. And I'm just so thankful for your word. And it, it's just another great, amazing gift that you give us that we don't deserve, whether it's our lives, our bodies, uh, this world that we live in. So many things, and we just want to give you praise as we go to uh, get ready for our worship service, Lord. We want to praise and glorify you in all of it, every bit of it, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.